everybody. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes for another episode of the So We Speak podcast. And I am very excited about our topic for today, the book of Ephesians. This is one we've been saving up for, uh, I don't know how long we've been doing this, two years of these book overviews to get to this one. Yes, it is a special book. And, and our, our hope is that by the end of this podcast, you probably stop your car, pull over and read the book of Ephesians. <laughs> that would that would be the goal. That would be ideal. And one of the things I love about the book of Ephesians is you can read it in about 15 minutes or 20 mm-hmm. minutes. Um, it's dense, uh, but it is not long. And it's a book that you can study over and over and over and over again, which we're going to try to convince you of today. So before we even get into the text of Ephesians, there's a lot of things to talk about on the front end to set up a study of Ephesians. And as you know, from listening to this podcast, or if you've done any study of the Pauline epistles, one of the questions that immediately comes up is, when was this written? And where was Paul when he was writing this? And sometimes you can answer that question, and sometimes you can't. Here we have a pretty good guess as to where and when this letter was written. What do you think about it? Well, I have a definite opinion. So, and I know you're going to talk in a second that there's always scholars in recent times who would argue that Paul wrote it at all, but I accept that Paul wrote it. And I think it it fits very nicely into Acts chapter 28. And if you remember at the very end of Acts, he is imprisoned at Rome, but not in a dungeon. He's in a house. He's a Roman citizen under house arrest, and he's preaching and he's writing. And it appears then that was about 62, roughly 62 AD. And it appears that he wrote this letter, a letter to Colossians, which we have in the Bible, and the letter to a man named Philemon. And if you think about it, if you were going to go hand deliver these letters, that's what you would do. You would sail to Ephesus, then you would travel inland to Colossae, and Philemon lived in the town of Colossae. And so by looking at the tail end of these letters that Tychicus is delivering them, Onesimus is mentioned, a short version of that is, I think, 62 AD, he's imprisoned in Rome, and he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and sent them with Tychicus on a road trip to deliver these letters to the Christians there. Right. As we talked about in the in the episode on Colossians, there is a lot of discussion over where Paul was, what imprisonment. We don't have all the imprisonments mentioned in Acts, but it may be that this one is in the first Roman imprisonment, as we discussed there. Uh, it is definitely likely that wherever Paul was and however he was being imprisoned, we do know uh, that this little parcel of letters was delivered together, most likely, mm-hmm. and who was delivering it. So th- those you can be certain about certain things and less certain about others, and then you sometimes just don't know about others. But in this one, we have a pretty good idea. The thing is, the thing about Ephesians is it is it is in the letters uh, that are probably in the second tier as far as how confident some scholars are that Paul wrote this letter. So you have the letters that almost everyone accepts. And again, this terminology is even getting a little bit out of date uh, because certain scholars are coming around to the idea, even what we would have considered liberal scholars are coming around to the idea that, well, just to say, you know, randomly that Romans and Philippians and Philemon and Galatians are authentic, just goes ahead and sets a standard by which to weigh these other letters. But if we had picked other letters to be the standard, then maybe we're not convinced that Paul wrote Romans. Instead, it's better to say, 
why don't we take these letters at their face value? They say they're written by Paul. We don't have early attestation uh, to the contrary. Instead, I think in the case of Ephesus especially, there's a lot of attestation through the amount of Christian work that's being done there that if it wasn't by Paul, we would have heard about it. So why don't we just take it at its face value? But with that said, this is in the second level of letters, which would include Ephesians, Colossians, the pastoral letters, that certain scholars have doubted whether or not Paul wrote these letters. And there are linguistic reasons for that, syntactical things about the words that are used. There are theological reasons for that, where certain people believe that the letters were a little bit different. But I don't find any compelling reason to think that Paul didn't write this letter. In fact, I think as we get into it, you're going to see the historical and the theological layout of the book of Ephesians would lead us to believe this is about as Pauline as any Pauline letter could possibly be. Exactly. Uh, Yes. And the thing I would point out, as I always do in these discussions, is there are no historical or archaeological reasons for thinking Paul didn't write this. In fact, the early uh, church believe that he did. This is more based on tertiary and you know quaternary kind of ideas that are far, far removed from history. So I do want to point out one unique feature of the book of Ephesians, and that is in certain early manuscripts, you don't have the opening line to the Ephesians. You have Paul and then you have the rest of the letter. And in certain cases, you actually don't have anything like that at the beginning. And this has led some scholars to believe that Ephesians is an encyclical letter. And what we mean by that is it is a template letter that Paul would have written and sent to a lot of different churches. And one of the reasons they believe that is if you if you look at the end of Paul's letters, usually you have all these individual people that Paul is mentioning. If you look at the book of Romans, for example, Paul's never even been to Rome, and he has a whole chapter, a couple dozen people that he mentions by name that he wants to greet. And this is Paul's common practice. But if you look at the end of Ephesians, for example, in chapter 6, verse 21, um, so that you may know how I'm doing, Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. That could be part of the encyclical letter, or it could be a little addendum, but there is no long, specific Uh, greeting section or farewell section at the end of the letter, even though Paul spent as much time in Ephesus as he spent anywhere. So he has intimate knowledge of these people. He knows the church. He knows the leaders. He knows the elders. He knows the people who are there, but he doesn't say anything to any of them. So the beginning and the end have led people to think, well, maybe this is a kind of summary letter that Paul would have written to these churches. Here's another reason why people think that. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are very, very similar in their outline. They flow, or if you were to write a table of contents, they resemble each other in a closer way than any of Paul's other letters. Yes. If that's the case, you have to wonder, Ephesians is more general than Colossians. It is less concerned with responding to any of the, the individual pastoral issues that are going on. You don't have a single mention of a specific issue that's going on in the church. But if this outline is the same, then this was probably something that Paul was accustomed to writing. He just he talks about these subjects in this order. He uses these same phrases. He uses these same themes. This was a common way of Paul expressing his theology to the churches. This may not be a great analogy, Cole, but I kind of think of it a little bit this way is if you think about Craig Rochelle at Life Church and he's 
preaching at the campus here in Oklahoma City. And of course, there are 100 campuses around the country that are also hearing this live stream. You know, one thing that Craig doesn't do is when he gets up there, he doesn't say, hey, there's going to be a potluck dinner on Saturday. Well, that's probably true at that location, but he realizes he wants to speak to all the locations. So he just doesn't say that. Now, again, maybe not the perfect analogy, but I wonder if this is Paul's version of that. He could have greeted so many people in Ephesus, but he wants this letter distributed to a lot of different places. I think that's a that's a great analogy for it, because he could have been very personal, but he's not. And so to some scholars, and I actually agree with this, I think that this is likely that Ephesians or something like Ephesians was an encyclical kind of letter that Paul would have sent. And we just happen to have the one that he sent to the church in Ephesus. Right. So I want to make a distinction here. A lot of times in commentaries, if you dig a little bit deeper into Ephesians, you'll see, oh, Paul didn't write this and it's an encyclical letter. Those two things don't necessarily go together. Saying that Paul didn't write this when it says that he does is to say that that actually something is not true that the Bible says is true. Right. To say that this is an encyclical doesn't mean that this isn't to Ephesus. This letter is to Ephesus. Right. But it may be an, an example of or an instantiation of a encyclical letter that Paul sent everywhere. So I mentioned that just to say that it does no disservice to what the Bible says about Ephesians to say that it may have been a, a letter that Paul wrote multiple times and traveled widely. Instead, what it does is it actually gives us a little bit of insight into how to interpret the book of Ephesians as a broader and more polished summary of Paul's own theology as he expressed it to the churches. That's a really great point. And one small thing I'll say here, because I I do talk to people sometimes and they'll read a commentary and they'll say, well, there's a textual disagreement. You have some of these manuscripts that say to uh, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. And there are other copies that say to the saints who are faithful. It leaves out in Ephesus and they think, oh no, there are disagreements in the Bible. Well, the point you're making is really powerful. Who said these were the same letter? In other words, he did write uh, one and a number of copies were made that said in Ephesus, but he may have also written letters with this exact same content to be delivered other places. And I I think before we jump to doubt, because I know those things sometimes make people doubt uh, the New Testament a little bit. There are a a lot of possibilities here. And I'm glad you brought this up that saying that this is an encyclical letter is not in any way devaluing the truth of the letter or the inspiration. Saying that Paul didn't write it is directly contradicting, contradicting, excuse me, what the Bible says. So two more things before we get to the actual text of of Ephesians. The first one is uh, I was looking through a few materials on Ephesians this week, and I saw that John Piper last year finished his series of look at the book on Ephesians. And um, what's interesting about that is, first of all, how do you do 250 10-minute episodes on a a book that takes up about seven pages of your Bible? I mean, this is seriously in-depth. And secondly, when he was done, He said it was like reaching the summit of the second highest peak in the Himalayas, which, of course, he thinks that Romans is the Everest of the New Testament. But describing Ephesians as the second highest peak really resonates with me. But but I also thought there's something interesting about saying that. How can you say that the book of Ephesians 
is like a high peak when we also believe that every word of the Bible is inspired and useful and um, has the same authority as the rest of the Bible. So is it a bad thing to say that Ephesians is a special book or maybe a higher book or a cornerstone book and still say that every word of the Bible is inspired by God? That's a great question. I'll give an opinion. You can and share yours as well. But I think it's a very reasonable thing to say, but not because it's truer than the other letters, not because uh, what it has to say is necessarily more useful to some people than the other books. I would put it this way. A lot of the other letters are sent to address specific issues. And they are not specific issues that don't still happen today, but they're specific issues. For example, in Thessalonians, they had a problem about they hadn't been taught about what happens at the end of the world. And so you, you speaks about eschatology a little bit. When you read Corinthians, they have a number of problems in that church and he's addressing them. Now, everything he's addressing then is very applicable today. So those are very powerful books. Ephesians. Is, and Romans are examples of books that aren't really written to address a specific problem. They're there to give you an overview or tapping into the big themes of the gospel itself. In other words, they have a different purpose. So if you asked me if I had one tool that I used a few times a year, is that an important tool? Yes, it is. But then you might point to another that I use every day. Well, they're both useful tools to me, but I'd have to say that this one is much more used by me because it is designed for a purpose that I actually need every day. So I don't know if that's a great analogy or not, but I do think that it's a reasonable thing to say, and it doesn't take anything away from the other letters. Yeah, I, I would agree. That's what I think about it, too, is I, I think it's not we're not saying that it's better in the sense of more inspired. You right. might say that it's more applicable or you might say that it is a better and this is kind of the way I would put it. It is a better snapshot of what the entire Bible teaches in a short amount of space than some of these other letters are. Some of them are more specific. It's more general. Some of these are more practical. It's a little bit more theological. Some of these are uh, a little bit more, like you said, useful in very specific situations. This one is useful in nearly any situation. Right. And so it's not any more inspired. It's not any more godly. Um, it doesn't have any more worth as in um, you know, one word of God versus another, but it may be more useful and it is a little bit more practical and it is a little bit higher book in the sense of if you read Ephesians, you're going to have a better sense of what is going on across the Bible than if you read a book like Second Thessalonians, for example. I do still think it's useful, though. We talked about this book being written in 62 AD when Paul's imprisoned and, and written to churches. He had indeed, many of them, he had indeed visited. But I still think, even though this is a letter that's broadly applicable and wasn't addressing a specific problem, it's still useful to know what happened when Paul was in Ephesus. You know, mm -hmm. as he's thinking about this, writing it, he actually had a, what, two and a half year experience in the town of Ephesus. Yeah, here's the other thing we, we should probably think about before we come to the text is what was what was Paul's relationship with the church? How did the church begin? And we get that story starting in the end of Acts 18 and especially in Acts 19. So Apollos, who we know from Acts, was a super preacher, great orator, 
powerfully preach the scriptures, but only knew the baptism of John. He had been in Ephesus and he actually, that's where he encountered Priscilla and Aquila who take him aside and explain things a little bit to him. He was preaching in Ephesus. So Paul and his crew get there and they realize they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They've only had preaching about the baptism of John. So they pray, the Holy Spirit comes Paul enters the synagogue and speaks for three weeks, and then he turns his attention out to the entire city. And one of the things I love about this story in in Acts 19 is you get a little insight into Paul's method in a city. So this is the longest he ever stays in one place, and he starts renting a room. This is in chapter 19, uh, verse 9. He withdrew from them, that's the Jews, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in the morning, Paul's working. He's in a business with Priscilla and Aquila. And in the evening, he's lecturing in the hall of Tyrannus. And as he's preaching, things really start to change in the town of Ephesus. And this is such a good picture of what happens when you see a revival breakout, biblical preaching. It actually changes the economy of the place. It changes socially. It changes religiously. And you have these traveling, these itinerant Jewish exorcists named the sons of Sceva. This is an interesting story, but we don't have time to, to talk about it. The one I really want to talk about is the riot that happens because the silversmiths guild, who is making idols, are so... They're hurting so much financially because nobody's buying idols anymore that they cause a big riot and they try to get Paul out of town. So they they have a big riot. A bunch of people get involved. Of course, Paul ends up leaving like he usually does because things are so violent and uh, because people are trying to harm him and he ends up going on um, on his journeys. But while he's there, he plants this church. He gets very close. He uh, selects the leaders. And later we're going to see in chapter 20, when he is on his way towards his arrest in Rome, being arrested in Jerusalem, he actually stops and sends for these Ephesian elders to bid them farewell. And I think this section, if you have a chance in Acts this week, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17 and going to the end of the chapter, Paul gives his farewell sermon about his ministry and his role in these churches. And it is just one of the best passages in the Bible. He talks about preaching the entire counsel of God. Um, he warns them of persecution that's coming. He instructs them in how to lead the church well. And Ephesians carries on to have a really good legacy throughout the history of the church and, and certainly in the early first century. You could make an argument that after the first decade or so in Jerusalem, Ephesus is the epicenter of Christian teachers and preachers right. coming through. You have Paul there, or you had Apollos there, then you have Paul there, you have these elders that have been appointed. John ends up in, El in Ephesus doing ministry there. And then you have a letter in the book of Revelation from Jesus to the church at, at, at Ephesus. And uh, I've heard people make this comparison before. It's an interesting study to go from what's being said about Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, for example, through the book of Ephesians, through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, through the book of Revelation, where right. over the span of maybe a generation or so, right, you have a church that is thriving, and in Revelation you have a church that's about to lose its lampstand if they don't repent. And so you have a you can almost see the life cycle of a church, and uh, we happen to know throughout history that the church in Ephesus did thrive, and in the early church it did thrive, even though it was persecuted, and even though 
Uh, they went through some false teaching. And anyway, this is the church that has this letter. And even early on, they knew that this letter to the Ephesians was something really special, something to be copied and studied and distributed. So with all of that, let's turn our attention to the book itself. This book, more than maybe any other, and this has become paradigmatic for Paul's letters, falls into this theology on the first half and application in the second half, or sometimes we would call it orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what to think or what's true about you and what you should be doing. So chapters one through three and four through six, if we're beginning to do an overview, this is the paradigmatic letter for how Paul likes to write. You see the same thing in Romans. It's not split you know, exactly equal number of chapters in the book of Romans, but you'll see in chapter 12 where there's a turn toward the what do I do with this? And here in chapter four, there's there's also that turn. Well, I'm going to start out and uh, claim my favorite part. This might be my favorite sentence in the whole Bible. It is Ephesians chapter one. It is, and I'm cheating a little, it's verses three through 14. And uh, that's actually in Greek one sentence. So I cheated and I said, it is my favorite sentence, but that section three through 14 might be my favorite in the New Testament. It is absolutely beautiful and encouraging. In it, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. He's reserved an inheritance for us that he predestined before the beginning of the world. It is almost impossible for me to read that verses three through 14 without just being unbelievably in awe of what God has done and unbelievably fortunate to be here. So mm -hmm. one of the really highlights is right off the bat for me in Ephesians chapter one. It is. And this is what we mean by it, it being one of those high peaks of the New Testament is just the way that Paul is able to pack in the truth of what God has done is amazing in these first few chapters Starting in chapter one, as you mentioned, with these long sentences, uh, you know, he does this a lot here. I think chapter one is maybe three total sentences, and it's just an ongoing expression of what God has done, who he is, what he's done for us. If we are looking at the beginning, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a theme that gets picked up again in chapter two, in chapter three, in chapter six, that God has given us what we need. He has blessed us. And in Christ, it's the beginning of a fountain of blessings that is going to come. And increasingly, we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. But we are also going to be blessed by God by being back in his family again. And he lists off some of the blessings that we've already been given. And we're going to see a few of the future blessings later in the book. But these are the blessings we've already been given, being chosen by him to be holy and blameless, predestined, predestined for adoption. Um, this is one of the big passages. This first part of Ephesians is one of the big passages to talk about predestination and um, what it means to be elect and to be chosen. Um, having redemption through his blood, the riches of his grace lavished upon us. And then we come in verse 10 to what is the theme of the letter. And that is a plan for the fullness of time to unite 
all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, that the entire universe, all of history is being summed up is what that word literally means in Christ. So he is like the line that if you, if you're going to add up a bunch of numbers and you draw the line at the bottom uh, to separate all the things that you're adding in the total, he is that line. He is the summation of everything in the universe, in heaven and on earth. He ties it all together. And this is where we see some big connections with the book of Colossians, because Colossians actually starts with this exact same theme. And Paul expresses it there a little differently. He is before all things. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is everything is for him and through him and in him, all things hold together. But this is the exact same theme that God is summing up all things in Christ and we get to be a part of it. And so Paul's going to expand on that idea for most of the rest of the book, but that's one of the big potent theological ideas in Ephesians is God's plan for all of history, even before the foundation of the world was to put Christ at the very center and sum everything up in him. That's, that's a great point. And as you move on, into chapter two. And remember, the chapter divisions are artificial. I mean, they were done later, but he moves on. And so in order to accomplish that, to unite all things in him, verse 10, things in heaven and things on earth, you need two things. You need reconciliation, considering that we are estranged from God and we are estranged from each other, is you need reconciliation with God, what I call vertical, and you need reconciliation in Christ horizontally with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so chapter two, verses one through 10, which I'm thinking now, maybe this is my favorite one, but chapter two, one through 10 talks about that vertical reconciliation. That's what had to happen first. It starts this way. As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you were following the ways of this world. And verse four, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. And then, of course, it has that famous passage. It's often quoted in verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It's a gift from God, not works so that no one could boast. But we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you Mm -hmm. see, summed up in just a few words, the beauty of the reconciliation, what I call vertically between us and God, that has to happen before we can be united. Yeah, this this section on being reconciled, both with God and then turning to others, has a lot of very famous verses in it. This is going to sound very familiar for people. You see in chapter two, verse four, but God, there's a lot of sermons. I've preached several sermons using that as a template. It's a two-word gospel, but God. And then, you know, we for by grace you have been saved through faith. I wish the end of verse 7 was a more famous passage, but it gets skipped over a lot of times. So that in the coming ages, so one of the reasons that he raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we get this weird self um kind of a self-deprecation gospel where we got saved, but just by the skin of our teeth and you better be on your best behavior afterwards. And uh, of course, what the spirit does in us is conform us to the image of Christ. But what this passage is saying is one of the reasons that God saved us is so that he could show us how rich he is in grace and kindness 
in the coming ages. So in, in eternity future, one of the things that he's going to do is show how rich in grace he is to those that he's saved. You know, verse seven is almost like a father who so wants to give gifts to his children, he'll he'll go to great lengths to make sure that his children come home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, he, he so wants to lavish his grace, but it was necessary for Christ to die on the cross for it to be possible for us mm-hmm. to be reconciled and to, to receive those blessings. Once he talks about that with God, he talks about that with other people, too, that we are able to be reconciled with others. We're able to have a restored relationship. Gentiles who were once a long way from God now have been brought near. So in verse 13, now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. This is one of the overriding issues in the New Testament that sometimes gets forgotten, is almost every letter and of Paul, certainly uh, a good portion of the Gospels of the book of Acts are talking about the broken relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? Um, are the Gentiles eventually going to come and worship God or are the Jews going to keep them from doing that? Are the Jews as the people of God going to fulfill the covenant of Abraham where they're blessing the nations because they have the inheritance of God? Well, here what we see is Christ has actually brought Jews and Gentiles together through his death and through his cross. And there's a great uh, phrase in here. I think it's in verse 14 um, that just puts this in really stark terms. Um, What does he mean here when he says he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility? You know, that would have been really graphic to them because this was known throughout the world because it was so unusual. But in uh, around the temple, in Jerusalem, there was a wall, and outside that wall, there's a big courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles, and anyone could come in there and admire the temple and be part of what was going on. But there was a wall that, to go past that point, you had to be a Jew. And there were signs on that wall that said, if you go past this point, you have no one to blame but yourself for your death, which will most certainly ensue. And you know, the Romans didn't allow the death penalty, but they did allow this. They said, you put those signs up, and if a non-Jew comes into your holy place, you really can kill them. And so this is a literal dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, that the Jews could go in, but if the Gentiles came in, they would die. They would be Mm -hmm. killed. And so there's a a very, and the whole world knew about this because it was such an exceptional thing that the Romans would even permit this. But it's, uh, it's just really vivid to them what it meant to break down the dividing wall of hostility. Mm-hmm. And Paul makes this really clear that this is his mission, is to break down this wall, to extend out. The presence of God is coming out through Jesus Christ, out of the Holy of Holies, out through the courts, and out into the Gentile world. In chapter 3, he says the mystery is, because he's saying the mystery is now revealed, And the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This would have been radical to the Jews at the time. And these are the kinds of things, like remember when I was talking in Acts chapter 19 about Paul in the synagogue, these are the kinds of things that Paul would have been saying that are true from the scriptures, but are also the things that made the Jews want to kill him. And so he's he's saying this to the Jews, proving that Jesus is the Christ and that he is uniting 
all the peoples of the earth. And, you know, this is certainly not something Paul invented. If you think back to the Great Commission, just one example from Jesus' ministry, there are many, but on the Great Commission, he talks about go into all the world, you know, as you go, make disciples of all the nations. And so you see this idea, which, by the way, that would not have been that popular amongst the Jews. That would have been mm-hmm. mind-blowing, like, really? You're, this is going to be for not just the Jews. It's going to be for all human beings will have the opportunity to come to Christ and be reconciled. That was not shocking to us as Americans, but it was very shocking to them. And so that idea traces itself back, obviously, to the cross and to Jesus and what he was trying to do. And, and I think it it fast forwards to us because we don't really have a Jew-Gentile split. But let's face it, we have all kinds of splits in terms of, well, those people are not ever likely to come to Christ. And I'm not even sure Jesus ought to let them come to Christ. Mm-hmm. But the gospel is for all who, who respond in faith. So Paul takes this as his mission to preach this message of the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles. And the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, he says in 3 verse 6. Um, that's exactly what he says in Colossians. So in Colossians, he says, the, the mystery has been hidden for all the ages but it's been revealed in Christ. And this is the mystery Christ in you thinking of the Gentiles, the hope Mm -hmm. of glory. So he is made minister to the Gentiles. And in chapter three, he talks about the fact that he has spent his ministry going to the Gentiles. And so he asked them then to pray for him um, as he works to unite all the peoples, all the family on in heaven and on earth that is named through God, the father, that the riches of his glory may be granted to them and Christ would dwell in their hearts. You get this really powerful prayer that so many of us have prayed before and listened to. May we have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to pause here to take this fullness language and just point out something. Um, you see it here in chapter three, verses, verse 19. This is a big theme in Colossians as well. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to chapter one, verse 23, it says he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One of the commentators, Stephen Fowl, has a good commentary in the New Testament library series on this book. And he says that 123 is the most obscure verse in Ephesians, if not the entire New Testament. And I don't want to try to solve it for you today, but I do want to point out that this theme of fullness, the church being the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God being in Christ, which is a big thing in Colossians. And then here um, we are we need the strength to comprehend the love of Christ so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. This is kind of a mystical theme, but a really important theme that runs through Ephesians and Colossians, that this is not a halfway salvation. God is putting his fullness in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we have the fullness of God in our salvation, the fullness of the Holy Spirit working in us, that the Holy Spirit is a fully divine person of the Trinity, fully God, just like the Father and the Son are working through us. So it's almost as if, and and there are nuances here that we can't get into, but it's almost as if he's saying, you have been brought in to the whole thing that God is doing, being filled with the fullness of God through his spirit. So you're not on probation. This isn't provisional. This is just come in and be a child. You're not a servant in the family. You are a child of the, of the father. 
Yeah, and Paul gets so revved about this that he ends chapter three with a doxology. He bursts into praise. Yeah, which he often does in these in these letters. But this is the hinge point here between the theology section, we would say. And this is a bit a, a bit too stark of a divide, but but certainly a more here's who you are section and here's what you should do section. So in 320, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now notice this change. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the calling to which you have been called is essentially what he says in chapters one through three. Right. This is who you are. This is how you were called. This is what you were called to. This is um, who did the calling. I mean, all of that is answered in the first three chapters. And now he says, okay, now I want you to live in a way that's worthy of all the things that I've just said about who you are and what God has done. And then we launch into this section about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of how we've been called. And the next three chapters are going to get very practical about what it means to live as a Christian. Yeah, I love that, the way he turns it, because uh, he's, I therefore, the therefore should tip us off that he's saying, based on what I have said, here is a conclusion I will draw. By the way, he says, a prisoner for the Lord, which is one of the hints that makes us think this is while he's in Acts 28 in, in uh, custody. I urge you to live in a way worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he goes on in the rest of the letter and breaks that down and gives not a comprehensive answer to it, but many, many specific illustrations of what it looks like. He basically says, since this is who you are, I just want you to live consistent with who you actually are. And, you know, that's really a great way to talk about the Christian life. Mm -hmm. He starts out talking about the Christian life in terms of maturity. So bearing with one another, maintaining unity, but then he moves into talk about the gifts and the difference here between the gifts in Ephesians and the gifts we think of in maybe first Corinthians 12 and 14, for example, is these gifts are roles. So they are people rather than um, the gifts we think of as healing and teaching and encouragement and faith. Here we have what a lot of people refer to as the APEST gifts, which is just an acronym for what these gifts are. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is what I think the real job of these people is. So the job of pastors, the job of shepherds, evangelists is to build up the body into mature manhood, he says, attaining the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to the stature of the fullness of Christ to not be children anymore. So he starts out this whole talk of individual maturity with church maturity. Part of the way that we mature is that as a church, we are all using our gifts together and the whole church grows up to look like Christ because we are his body. So he gives a framework at the beginning for what maturity would look like speaking the truth in love, growing up, um, and being held together because we are all functioning in love. This is the big picture of maturity before in the second half of chapter four through chapter six, he talks about individual maturity. So we get a sense of what should the church look like? The church is really important in the book of Ephesians, that your individual maturity doesn't happen when the whole church is not maturing. And that's 
that's actually really countercultural to the way we think of church in America today. But for them, they would have realized, especially with the coming persecution, that they needed each other as the body of Christ in order to grow like God had planned for them to grow. Exactly. I mean, we are used to a very individualistic way of thinking. It's just our culture and the way we were brought up. So we're bent that way a little bit. So we tend to think about the development of our faith as an individual thing. And that's not untrue. But Ephesians does a great job of talking about the idea of unity, the idea of equipping for ministry, the idea that we actually do mature as a group as well. And I think that's really healthy for us to realize that. That's a good point you make. So he turns his attention to say, okay, now, if you're going to be in Christ, you've got to walk the way Christ walks and not the way the Gentiles do. So he says, they walk in the futility of their minds. They've been darkened in their understanding. They've become callous to God. They've been greedy, practicing impurity. But that's not who you are in Christ. That's not what you learned in Christ. And so he's going to go on and talk to them about what it means to live like a Christian. You get some very concrete, practical, individual commands in the end of chapter 4 turning into chapter five. Exactly. You know, one of the ones that uh, stands out to me is in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Back in chapter one, it's one of the famous passages is when you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And now it says, and don't grieve the Spirit. And I think that's important, uh, just worth a mention here is, When you think about becoming more and more like Christ, this isn't a self-help project. Do we expend effort? Of course we do. If we're in love with someone, we make effort. But the, the real sanctification, the real holiness, the real turning into the image of Christ is the work of the Spirit in us. And so I really appreciate that. Don't grieve the Spirit, meaning cooperate with the Spirit because the Spirit has the power to transform us. So I think that's a really powerful idea. We are people who rely on the spirit of God more than we rely on our soul into individual ability to behave well, for example. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a spirit empowered growth that brings us to look the way that God's called us to look. And he continues that theme in chapter five, walking as children of the light. This is where we get this great passage, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. So we're making good use of the time. We are living the way that God has called us to. And then in the end of chapter five and starting in verse 22, we get into what we call household codes. So this would be how wives and husbands are supposed to behave towards each other. Children, slaves, obeying their masters. This is a pretty standard section in Paul's letters. You see this in his letter to the Colossians as well. You see the same kind of teaching in first Corinthians, you see it all over the place. You see it in first Peter, Jesus, even in his preaching talks about some of these same themes coming up, but it's very controversial in our world to talk about these teachings. So how do you tend to approach this section? Well, I have a lot of things to say about it in specifically, and maybe that's a good podcast. The whole household codes would be a good podcast on their own, but I do want to say this, the reason This is in so many places in the New Testament. Think about where we've been. We've talked about who you are. Then in chapter four, live in a manner worthy of your calling and begins to spell that out. What does it look like to live as a Christ follower who is being sanctified by the spirit in the world? At some point, you have to talk about, wow, that is powerful. Now, help me understand how does that interact when I go out 
into the world on Monday and I go back to work and I see these artificial cultural uh, things that are happening. Now, I realize children, parents and marriages and all aren't artificial. But the point is, up to this point, we've talked about everything that we said is true for a slave. It's true for a slave owner, a business owner, an hourly worker, a, a male, a female. Everything's true for everyone. I think the question has to be answered. Okay, help me understand how this plays out in social roles when we get out there. And you may disagree with that, but I think that it's an it's a necessary thing to say, now I want to apply this to what it looks like when you go live in a world that doesn't necessarily agree with all this. What do you think? Right. And I do think the specifics are worth getting into, but for this podcast, for this overview, if you've, if you've been following the way that Paul has organized this letter, it has gone from the very general all the way down to the specific Christians, to the specific gifts they've been given, to the specific things they should do, and now to the specific roles that they find themselves in, even in their own household. So it's it's that message that you were talking about of everything changes when you come to Christ. Every right. relationship, every part of you slowly over time is being conformed to the image of Christ by his spirit. And I will, I will say that um, this, this passage is read at a lot of weddings, this Ephesians 5 passage talking about husbands and wives together, children obeying their parents, Paul points out here that this is the only commandment with a promise in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, um, mm -hmm. that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. So this is Paul bringing the Old Testament teaching into the New Testament and saying, remember what God said all the way back in the book of Exodus? Here you have that same thing, honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you, bringing this continuity to what God had commanded in the Old Testament as spirit-driven obedience in the New Testament. Of course, the section here on bond servants or slaves and their earthly masters is extremely controversial in our society because we have a very different understanding of what it means to be a slave. We also have a racial component built into talking about slavery that was not always the same in uh, right. Roman culture. In fact, more often than not, it wasn't. And uh, the, the institution of slavery, as we've talked about in the book of Philemon, was not the same. And so uh, we have to read that in its original context, knowing that you can find yourself in a difficult situation, even a sinful situation. And this letter still has something to say to you. Um, you can find yourself the in the result of a sinful action, being a slave. And God still sees you. He still has something for you to do. He still has a plan for you to grow and mature, even in that situation. And so there's a lot of comfort here that whatever situation you found yourself in the Greco-Roman Empire, this is applicable to you. And he gets very specific. And um, I think there's something really comforting in the fact that he's able to go all the way down into these roles that people play and say there's a way to live as a fill in the blank as a Christian. Yes, I completely agree. I feel strongly about it. And we should dive into that. But in general, there is a reason, and I'm glad you pointed out how many times this is talked about in the New Testament. This isn't just a Paul thing or here. It's part of the Christian life, and that's why it shows up so often. And it's personal, too, because we know that in the group that's delivering this letter, we have a slave, a slave. who Paul is sending back. This is in the story of Onesimus and Philemon. And we know that Paul is sending him back with instructions and with instructions for Philemon as well on how to behave now that they are Christian brothers. So Paul gives a finally, in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. And here he moves into the final phase of the letter, which in this case, as we mentioned earlier, is, is it doesn't have the personal greetings appended to it. Instead, we get a kind of take action, theological and practical ending to this letter. The armor of God, I've often wondered, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a well-known passage. It's it's very famous passage, putting on the armor of God. It resonates with us deeply and has for centuries. But I've often wondered, why do you end the letter this way? Why is this at the end? And you know me, I tend to look first for historical answers. And one thing I will say is if this letter is written in 62 AD, which I believe it was, and it's written to the churches in what's now Turkey, called Asia Minor at the time. We know that First Peter was written about the same time, I mean, almost exactly the same time, and it was written to the same area. And First Peter is all about persecution, how to deal with persecution. And so there clearly is persecution in 62, and there was it was going to get much worse. In 64 AD, a couple of years later, Emperor Nero burns down half of Rome and blames it on the Christians. And persecution by the Roman people against the Christians really ramps up. And historically speaking, this part of the world, Ephesus, Colossae, all these towns in Turkey, really bore the brunt of persecution. So having said that, it makes me think that he gives this analogy of equipping yourself in God because you are getting ready for a battle. And your battle is with the devil not necessarily with the people that you see. It's with the powers of evil. And when I think about what was coming for these people, it makes sense to me that Paul would end the letter in this way. Now, I also believe that's true for us and for all Christians through time, but I wonder if this isn't uh, just really brilliantly done by the Holy Spirit to equip the people for what was about to befall them. Mm -hmm. I think that's the pressing historical reality and something that Paul is equipping the people to endure. And so he's giving them this encouragement that they're going to need armor to um, to endure what's coming, but not physical armor. Because he's already said, you know, our, our enemy is not the flesh. It's the principalities and powers. And so you need spiritual armor that you can put on each day. I'll give a textual background for this that I think adds to the meaning here in Ephesians. And this is a analogy that Paul is drawing on from the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 59, the Lord looks around and he sees that there's no justice. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And so in verse um, 16, his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And what you see is the Lord is going down and providing justice by putting on this armor, the armor of God. We, mm -hmm. we, we sometimes think that the armor is borrowed from God, but actually I think the armor of God means it's God's armor. It's like the armor that God actually wore here in the Old Testament figuratively to come down and provide justice. Well, Paul's used this, he's actually used this uh, image before in 1 Thessalonians, which is probably one of the first letters that Paul writes right in the New Testament, he gives a little miniature army of God. He's, he's developing this image in his preaching, and we see it in its nascent form in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, a, uh, an echo or an allusion 
to Isaiah 59. And then we see it in its full form here, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand, having fastened on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness as shoes on your feet, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So these are the things that we saw even back in the book of Isaiah. These are the things that God puts on as an image metaphorically to come down and do justice on the earth. And now we are in Christ. We're filled with the fullness of God. We are doing the same thing to bring justice to the world around us. We have to put on these exact same pieces of armor to go and do what God has been doing. We're taking part in his mission on the earth. And so Paul's encouraging these Christians, you now, as the body of Christ, are going to do the role. You're going to play out the role that God has been working towards in the world from all of eternity past. And now it's your turn to take part in the mission. Yes, it's almost like if you just trace the letter quickly, it's you were chosen in God. You were reconciled with God. You were reconciled with each other. And now go live out your Christian life in accordance with your calling. And we actually then put on God's own armor to go do battle against the forces of evil that so oppress those who have not yet heard the gospel. What a beautiful outline and what a beautiful story. Well, it's, you know, as we wrap up this podcast, it's funny because we've spent, you know, however long talking about this and we've just scratched the surface of what's here. And so I hope that by listening to this and especially this end part, we are commissioned to go and do what God has always been doing. We're taking a, we're taking part in the mission to go back and read and study this book and see that it actually helps you to understand and almost unfolds other parts of the Bible. That's what I mean by saying that this is one of the cornerstones of the Bible is if you read this, it will help you to read everything else and everything else helps you to read this. It's one of those lenses for reading the rest of the Bible. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.